I'm so glad to see you. You all are looking very spring-like today. Very happy, very smiling, very joyful. Is that true? Yeah, all right. Okay, so today I'm going to begin with just by giving you an invitation. I would like your feedback today. I would like your engagement today. I would like your participation today. So I just want to invite you to participate and feel joyful about that. It's springtime, right? Yes, it's springtime, right? Spring's first day was this past week. Easter is less than a month away. We have reason to be joyful, amen? So I want you to engage and be a part of the message this morning as we dive in together. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14. In just a minute, I'm going to read verse 1 through 14. This will actually be our chapter for this Sunday and next Sunday. And so if you take out those sermon notes, you can actually stick that right there in your Bible and you'll be ready for next Sunday as well. I wonder if you remember playing a game as a kid, maybe in an elementary school class or maybe some birthday party called musical chairs. Anybody play musical chairs? You remember the game? The participants get in a circle and there's one less chair as compared to how many players. The music starts and everybody goes around the circle waiting, waiting for what? The music to stop, and then what does everybody do? Find a chair. You know, you hear people laughing and giggling, throwing elbows, you know, kicking friends. It's really an adventurous game. Then the next round, they take off one chair, and on we go again, until finally we get down to one chair and two people. The music starts, and they're looking at each other like it's a death match. Right, Lots of competition, lots of anticipation here. They go around the circle, go around the circle, the music stops, and then they're both diving in for that one chair. Musical chairs is a lot of fun. It was actually a game that I really loved to play as a kid. In youth group, we played that a lot on Wednesday nights before we would do our Bible lesson and before we studied God's Word. But I wonder if you've ever played the game as an adult or as a young person, but you didn't really know you were playing the game. You find yourself at a workplace event, some meeting, some lunch, some banquet, some dinner, maybe a wedding reception. And as the seats are being filled, you're watching everybody and where they go, where they sit, who they sit next to, where the head table is and where the back seat is, the back row. And you're watching everyone kind of slink around, mingle around, pulsing to see where everyone will land. I had an experience just a few months ago. Governor of Kentucky was doing a series of town hall meetings around the state, and Campbellsville was one of those locations. And so prior to the town hall meeting, there was this banquet, luncheon for many people, the governor, his people, other politicians, state representatives, legislators, the city mayor, the county judge executive, the president of Campbellsville University, all these people in a room, and somehow I got invited, definitely by accident. So I walk in, and there's probably 30, 40 people there, and we're all watching each other because we don't want to sit in the wrong seat. 
Because eventually the governor will come in, eventually the mayor and the judge executive and all the people of importance will arrive and you don't want to be seated in the wrong spot. And so there was just a row of us kind of hugging the wall until everyone was situated and then you actually saw who thought they ought to sit in which seat. Ooh, the politics began. I sat in the back and watched it all unfold. It was like a game of musical chairs. Because the best seat in the house, the best seat in the room, the best seat in the banquet matters. It matters not only to the audience, but it matters to the host and it matters to those who have been invited. The best seat in the house is a treasured seat. But what about everybody else? Where does everybody else fit? And could there be a spiritual lesson in that game of musical chairs, in a lesson about humility, a lesson about pride, a lesson about ambition, a lesson about thinking too highly of yourself? We're in a series called The Chef's Table. And we've been looking at God's invitation to us to to commune with him, to dine with him, to be in relationship with him at his great table. And for the last couple weeks, we've been looking at the life of Jesus and how he was invited to different get-togethers, different dinner parties, and how he interacts with folks at the table. Well, last week, he went to the, we studied him going to the home of two individual men. Zacchaeus and Matthew, who were both tax collectors, sinners, the outcast of society. Well, in Luke chapter 14, I want to focus for the next two weeks of Jesus being invited to another person's home, but this time it's not a tax collector or a sinner. It's actually a leading religious leader in the community, a Pharisee, someone of high prestige among that culture and among that society. And we're going to see that Jesus has a lot to say about who gets the best seat in the house. And he has a lot to say about how we should treat others in our world. Luke chapter 14, verse 1 through 14. The scripture says, One Sabbath... When he, Jesus, went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And to them... He said, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could find no answer to these things. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place. Because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, 
Go and recline in the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus also said to the one who had invited him, When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame or blind and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would now take these words from your word and you will make them come alive. Like dry bones, you will give them flesh. Like just dust on the ground, you will bring life. And that our hearts would be ready to hear what your spirit has to say to each one of us. I need your help today, God. I acknowledge it. And I pray that you would do a work. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you would allow me this morning, I just want to look around this dinner party and look at three people, three folks that Jesus dealt with and then try to make a few lessons out of his dealings with them for each of us. Just so you're aware of what's going on, verse 1 tells us that on the Sabbath, Jesus was invited to a dinner party. Now, that one verse sets the stage for what really is about to take place. On the Sabbath is something of importance. As you might know, the word Sabbath is the idea that we get from the Old Testament that there's a day in the week that should be set apart. For the Jewish person, it's from Friday night sundown till Saturday night sundown. In the Jewish calendar, the first day of the week is Sunday. So the seventh day of the week would be Saturday. And they would look at what God did in creation and that he created in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. And that in the commandments that God gave to the people of God in Mount Sinai, that he utilizes this idea of honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, the Jewish people over that time had begun to make Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown a bit of a blackout period. You, you had to keep it separate. You had to keep it removed. You had to rest. And because of that, you were not allowed to work at all. They had all kinds of rules about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. Now, if you ever studied Spanish, you know the day that in the week for Saturday is called what? Anybody? Sabado. Guess we have no Spanish speakers in here. I know we have at least one. Sabado, Sabbath, Shabbat means that you need to rest. You need to stop. You need to quit. You need to be done with all your labor. So they did all kinds of things. They would say, okay, you can't lift more than five pounds on the Sabbath. Well, I couldn't lift either one of my baby boys because they both were eight pounders at birth. 
Can't pick up your baby on the Sabbath. They weigh too much. And you, you couldn't walk too far on the Sabbath. So you couldn't go down the street. Well, you could go down the street, but you couldn't get home because you would have walked too far. You would have gone too many steps. Uh, even things like physical needs, doctors couldn't help people physically because that would be making them work. And so if you got sick on Friday, good luck. Because the doctor can't see you and work on you until sundown Saturday night. There was all these rules about the Sabbath. And so when Jesus arrives at this Sabbath meal, it's a bit of a celebration of that day, that holy day, that set-apart day. And this Pharisee, who's all about the rules, all about the regulations, who makes his business of teaching others how to keep those commandments, he invites Jesus to this party. And before Jesus even gets into the house, what does he see? He sees a man hurting. A man whose leg is swollen with fluid. Maybe you can imagine something like gout, gangrene. Maybe just the swollenness of the skin creating such pressure and such pain. And Jesus sees this man, this hurting man, and he knows what's happening He knows all the rules they've created for the Sabbath. He knows that physicians are not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. Actually, this issue comes up time and time again in Jesus' ministry. On one occasion, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. He opens his hand and it causes an absolute fit among the Pharisees. In another occasion, Jesus was teaching in a house and it was so packed that they couldn't get a man on a mat in to be healed. And so you might remember, friends opened up the ceiling of the house and lowered the man down. And what does Jesus tell that man on the Sabbath? Take up your mat and walk. Doing what? Breaking both rules. The walking and the lifting of the mat. So Jesus knows a Sabbath healing ceremony right here at the beginning of this meal is going to cause a fuss. And so what does he do? Verse 3 tells us, he asks all of them in the room, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath or not? How do they respond? And they go silent. So then Jesus poses this question, and I think it was meant to make them laugh at themselves. He says, which one of you, if your son or your livestock, your ox, falls into a well, will not get him out? I can only imagine this happening in my house. I have two sons. Let's say Friday night, 6.30, 7 o'clock, sundown. They're out piddling around, and they fall into a well. And I notice they fall into a well. I'm like, guys, sorry, I'll see you tomorrow night. Just hang out down there overnight in the well, I'll come back with a rope tomorrow night, get you out when Sabbath is over. You can imagine them chuckling, giggling at that proposition. But that's the exact thing that they would say is what God commands. That you can't offer a rope to a child in a well. You can't lift a child out of a well. You can't help a livestock get out of trouble because it's work. They had made the commandments of God into something super legalistic, 
super overarching. They had put rules and regulations and requirements and restrictions on God's commands such that they were completely missing the whole point. A few, few years ago, I had moved to a new neighborhood and we knew our neighbors, but not really that well. One Sunday afternoon, I decided to mow my grass. Mow my grass on Sunday afternoon. I was putting up the mower and putting up the, the weed eater and just kind of coming back to the house and, and my neighbor was out there and, and I had met him, but we really didn't know each other. And he walks over to me and he begins to ask me questions about mowing on Sunday afternoon. I thought he was joking with me. I, I thought he was giving me some like, hey preacher, you out mowing on the Lord's day, you know, working on the holy day of God. I thought he was actually cracking a joke. And I'm like, yeah, I gotta get that lawn mowed, you know, it's getting high, it's all ready to go. I really completely missed it but he was slightly offended that I had mowed on Sunday. Now, the story went that apparently my neighbor had also said the exact same things to the man who lived in the house before us. At least he's consistent. Not to make any snide remarks about my neighbor, he is a God-fearing, wonderful man, most generous man. But I'm afraid over time he might have missed the actual purpose of the Lord's day, of the day of worship and rest. I mean, we have to recognize we at any point can take one of God's commandments, let's say to not take his name in vain or to not steal or to not commit adultery or to honor our father and mother or honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. We can take any one of God's commandments and put extra requirements and restrictions and rules and regulations on top of them that we completely miss what God designed them for. God designed the commandments, all that he gives us, to do two things. One, it's to help us in our relationship on the vertical with him, such as, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not take my name in vain, you shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, and also to handle the horizontal relationships. Honor your father and mother. Do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false testimony, do not covet, do not commit adultery. It's all to keep us doing two things, loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus summarized all the commandments in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love those around you like you love yourself. You see, I think Christians are all susceptible of doing the exact same thing that the Jewish people did then. We're able to take the commandments of God, the good will of God, and put all kinds of legalism on top of it, all kinds of restrictions, all kinds of regulations, and completely miss. Such that the world will say about those who follow Christ, well, it's just a bunch of thou shalt nots. Friends, the commandments of God are not just a bunch of thou shalt nots. They're designed to keep us in right relationship with him and in right relationship with one another. Leave them as they are intended to be. This Pharisee 
saw a man who was at his doorstep get up and walk, and he says nothing. But as Jesus is walking into the house, he's noticing something. People haven't sat down yet. It's still the game of musical chairs. Verse 7 says he's noticing how they would choose for themselves the best places. And so he gives this parable. A parable to the invited guest. Now I'm going to rephrase the parable kind of in a modern way. So give me a little license. The parable that Jesus shares would be something like this. You're invited to a wedding reception. And after the wedding, the reception hall is being filled. And you decide that you would like to sit up front. And so you go up to where the bridal party is to be seated. And you sit in the spot designated bride and groom. Isn't that ridiculous already? But the father of the bride comes in and sees you at the bridal table and walks up to you and whispers in your ear, what are you doing up here? This is for the bride and groom. Get back there. They're they're about to come in. They're about to get here. You're in their seats. So you take your plate, take your things, and you shuffle back embarrassed. Now, who would do that? Well, let me ask this. Have any of you ever made that mistake? I don't think so. But then he goes on. The parable continues and he says, instead, when you go to a business meeting, a business banquet, sit in the back. Sit far off. And when the host comes in, he's going to see you. What are you doing back here? This is not your spot. Come on up here with me. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to make sure you are in front of the others then everyone will see that the host has moved you forward and you will be honored. See, Jesus knows the condition of the human heart. And every one of us, whether we want to admit it or not, we want to be seen. We want others to see us. We want to be recognized. We want to be praised. We want to be honored and exalted. We want our name to be printed in the bulletin. We want our name to be added to the donor list. And we want our name to be bolded to determine how much we've given in light of everyone else. We live in a society. Think about it with me, brothers and sisters. We live in a society that is enamored with getting seen, with being followed, with being looked at, with, oh, how many things do I put out that everyone likes and loves and shares and sins? We have a whole culture of young people whose sole purpose is to get famous and to be a celebrity and to be known. Everybody wants to be at the best seat. Everybody wants to make sure others see them. See, Jesus knows the human heart. Instead, he challenges those of us who know him to be completely opposite of that. He challenges every one of us to humble ourselves instead of being humiliated. Uh, Romans 12.3 says this, Do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought. 
Romans 12, 10 says this, as best as you can, seek to try to outdo in showing honor to others. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. In a society that's enamored with getting seen and being watched and being praised and having their name in the big print, the reality is for the follower of Jesus, we are always to take the last seat in the house. We're always to put others before ourselves. We're always to give the deflection of individual praise and return it to others. An arrogant Christian should be an oxymoron. A puffed up believer should really be hard to find. But that's not what I see in the world. I see a lot of men and women who love Jesus and who carry his name take every best seat in the house. What I see is that there is very little difference in the business world in the political world, for the follower of Christ or not, when it comes to those who are exalting themselves. Friends, it is very, very dangerous to exalt yourself. Because you could be the one that God taps on the shoulder and says, what are you doing up here? Need to head on back. Jesus really gives them a lot to think about. He gives us a lot to think about. He deals with a man out front who's hurting. He deals with the individual guests, the invited guests. But I want to finish this morning with the one that I think is the most interesting. All of it's interesting. All of it's fascinating. But I find Jesus' dealings with the gracious host in verse 12 through 14 to be the most pinpointing into the human heart. Let's go back to verse 12, 13, and 14, just so we all have it familiar again in our minds. It says, Now Jesus said to the one who had invited him, to the leading Pharisee, to the one whose house this was, to the one who had sent the invitation to Jesus to come to the meal, he says to this leader of the community, When you give a lunch or a dinner, Don't invite your friends, your brother, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors, just because you might be invited back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, lame, maimed, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Just just let that sink in for a minute. Jesus had been invited by this man. Jesus was included in this man's invitations for this Sabbath meal. Jesus is one of the invited guests to sit at the table and maybe even brought up near the best seat where the leading Pharisee would be himself. This is Jesus interacting with this host, not with the other invited guests or not with his disciples, but the actual one who opened up their home and invited people in. And Jesus is challenging him, challenging him about his invitation strategy. 
And Jesus' words to him are, stop inviting the rich. Stop inviting the famous. Stop inviting the movers and the shakers. Stop inviting those that can give you political favors, who you can horse trade at a later date with, people of influence, people of significance. And start inviting the poor, the broken, the sick, the blind, like that guy out in front of your house. In all actuality, the reason Jesus was invited was probably because Jesus was a well-known teacher. He had a bit of a reputation. He had crowds that followed him. And this Pharisee wanted Jesus in his house because in that society, Jesus was actually really, really popular as he is still to this day. But Jesus is saying, don't invite people like me. Don't invite the people like you have, your family, your friends, your rich relatives. But invite the ones that cannot repay you anything that will never, ever be able to invite you back to their home because they may not even have a home to invite you to. And you will receive a blessing through God because you're doing something that only he can see. Uh, Jesus said something very similar to this. If you still have your Bibles, turn back to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. Friends, hear this, okay? Hear this. This is really, really important. Jesus says to those who were listening on that mountain, Matthew 6, verse 1 through 4, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Don't get all gussied up, polished up, put together so that you can go and be around righteous people and they can think, oh, well, you're, you're all put together because look at them. God sees through those fake acts. We don't, we don't put on a show for others in a spiritual way. We don't put on a show for others just to be seen. He continues, he says, otherwise you have no reward with your father in heaven. It has absolutely no spiritual value to pretend something spiritual. He goes on in verse 2. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or on the streets to be applauded by people. Friends, I have seen numerous people give gifts just so they can be applauded by others. Well, my name's on that plaque. Shoot, I, I gave the money that dug this dirt to build this church. Oh, I'm the one that's being memorialized with a statue. <laughs> Friends, let me tell you, I work on a college campus that has to fundraise. Do you know we have big dinners for big donors for one purpose? To get them to keep giving more money. We invite them to the campus to throw on a big party, to put their names in lights, to put their name on a bulletin, to tell everybody how much they gave. And we do it for one reason, so they'll keep giving. 
Because if you don't praise them, applaud them, display them before others, you know what? They won't feel thanked. They won't feel appreciated. And they may not write a check. Friends, if you're really going to give to something, you give so that you just don't receive anything in return. Jesus continues. He says, I truly, I tell you, they have the reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that in your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Friends, the real reward for our giving or our hospitality or our ministry to others is not for folks to see us or to applaud us or to recognize us. Our reward is from God and we just receive it because he's sees we're being faithful and we're being kind and we're being generous and we're just doing it out of the abundance of our heart because we recognize we have nothing without God and that everything we have has been a gift from God and it's been a blessing from God and he's giving it to us such that we don't get the recognition of men but that we can return it for his glory there's a whole lot that Jesus is saying right here that's not politically smart Thank God Jesus wasn't politically smart. It's not politically savvy. Honestly, it's a terrible fundraising strategy. But if you're the kind of person that really wants to give, really wants to be generous, really wants to bless others, do it in a way where you will never, ever be praised. Give anonymous. Give quietly. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Do you, get the, do you get the metaphor there? Do it in such a way that it's just between you and the Lord. Jesus is trying to tell the host that he needs to change the way he's doing things because the reason he invited everyone to his home that night was so that they might invite him in a future date and pay him back with some return generosity. But Jesus says, think other ways. Think about rewarding, not here on this earth, but rewarding one day in heaven. Friends, Jesus had a lot to say on this Sabbath dinner party. He challenged them as he challenges us today to not make the commandments into something they're not. But remember, they're about a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. He reminds us to not take the best seats in the house but, and not to honor ourselves, but to really be humble and be then exalted by others. But outdo in showing honor, outdo in putting others ahead of yourself. And most importantly, he teaches us that when we give, Do it with the spirit that it's only between you and God, not for the praise of others, the applaud of men. And that's where true blessing comes from. Jesus had a lot to say in this dinner party, didn't he? But he even had more to say. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. Let's pray together. Just right now, as you're meditating there, thinking, I just pray that you would look inward. Maybe you've made the the commandments of God into something they're not. Maybe you've stepped into legalism by accident or by intention. 
He just put all these rules and regulations and restrictions on something that really God never designed. Maybe today you just need to come back to understanding that all of the commandments are summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe you're like those who had been invited and you're always clamoring, always striving, always positioning for the next seat, the best seat, the right seat, this relationship, that relationship, this back scratch, that back scratch. You're just doing everything you can to be in the right place with the right people all the time that you've become a bit prideful, a bit arrogant. And you're just gonna allow the Lord right now to humble you in a sense of discipline and correction. Maybe you're like the leader of this group of Pharisees, this host. A lot of what you've done to give to others and invite others has been to be praised and be applauded, to be acclaimed, to be known, to be memorialized. Your right hand has known what your left hand is doing every single step of the way. You just want to confess that to the Lord and say, Lord, whatever's next, Let me just receive the reward from you and not the applause of men. Test my motives. Test my my heart. Make sure that I'm obedient in this facet with you. I'm gonna pray a prayer and if God has been speaking about any of these things or other things to you, you're most certainly invited to respond, whether to me so I can pray with you to this altar so you can come and just do work with God or there in your seats. Just respond to whatever God's stirring spirit has said to you. Lord, I thank you for this word from Jesus. I thank you for this text that gets to the heart of the human condition. We all need to be analyzed before your word. And I just pray, God, whatever your spirit has said, whatever your spirit has voiced, that we would be obedient now to respond. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Would you stand?